Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Yes, tonight we begin what I think will be an important series of conversations with our human condition specialist clinical psychologist, Lynn Worsley, on addictions. How and why do they start, as well as a whole range of specific addictions that we'll be covering in the coming weeks from drugs to alcohol, food to apparently especially hoarding. Or not, Lynn Worsley, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks so much for coming in. Everybody loves you. Put something up on Facebook and they all just romp in. <laughs> so take us through, first of all, the psychological world of addictions. We'll cover a bit in theory tonight, I think. You've been approaching this, um, I know, with a bit of trepidation, haven't you? Why yes, I have. Well... With addictions, from a psychological perspective, the uh, term addictions opens a huge set of pathways of study. Hmm. Um, It divides theories and it's a subject that's been studied for decades without any real conclusions. Um, So we're sort of coming closer to understanding the changes in the brain associated with addictive behaviour now that that we can look at the brain a bit closer, particularly with regard to the neuropathways and the neuroplasticity of the brain. Yes. But we're in a bit of a... A quandary. Okay. I look forward to the quandaries then. Let's go through some of the theories because there are numbers of theories that relate to how addiction to something develops and and some of them clash a bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, Firstly, it's thought that addictions develop as a habitual response to observable learning. So basically, we learn. It's a learned behavior. So the first one I'll look at is like what you call social learning theory. And that was put forward by Albert Bandura. Um, in the 1960s and then he went on with a much more sophisticated model in about the 90s and it's a bit like monkey see monkey do Um, and this theory breaks down social learning into four parts the monkey observes the behavior so it's modeled to them the monkey forms an idea of how the behavior is formed so it's coded coded in the brain and then the monkey later reproduces the behavior so it practices it and it has some sort of reinforcement of the behavior and it feels good and then the monkey is then motivated to do it again. Yes. So basically someone with an addiction to something is not only exposed to the substance or the behavior that they've learned, but they code it as a norm. So like it's a normal behavior. So that might be with any behavior that's not performed in a balanced way. So for example, drug or alcohol use or shopping, excessive shopping, excessive eating, sexual activity, um, or anything that they might be exposed to in their early years. Now, according to the National Drug Strategy Household Survey in 2010, 87.9% of Australians over 14 years had drunk alcohol at some stage in their life. And it just shows, the statistics shows just how much alcohol is consumed within Australia and therefore it's a drug that is acceptable in society. And we're going to devote devote one of our specific... um conversations to alcohol addiction in the coming weeks so that's learned behavior there's another theory about how our behavior is conditioned what does that mean well conditioned now that theory that this, the condition or theory is called operant conditioning and that's put forward by skinner um, and it's based on the idea that behaviors that are reinforced will tend to continue while behaviors that are punished will eventually end so for a person who has an addiction, the stimulant for the use user would be, say, a drug. That would be the stimulant. Mm-hmm. And the effect of the sti- stimulant is a reinforcer, positive reinforcer. And as a result of taking the drug, it reinforces that the drug's good. And it achieves what the person wanted from the drug. The user could get positive reinforcement every time they use the drug. 
However, as the drug or stimulant is used repeatedly, the user focuses more on the positive effect and doesn't even look at the negative effects. So basically, the negative effects are reduced. Notwithstanding that probably there is a reality of negative effects. That's right. And actually, in drug use, the negative effects are increased. But because the drug is such a positive stimulant, it doesn't actually register for them that there's a negative problem so to counteract the positive reinforcement it would need to be change the positive reinforcement into a negative reinforcement so what they've got now is a drug for alcoholics and it's called antabuse Um, and that makes them feel sick when they drink alcohol so the positive reinforcer is replaced by a negative reinforcer do you understand how that drug actually works yes but it doesn't work for everybody so if that was just the perfect theory it would be Way that we'd go. fix it all. How, how many or what proportion of people does it help? I couldn't tell you exactly, but I know that the people that I have seen, um, oftentimes they're using that drug, but they're also trying to work out ways to actually get around it. So there's a psychological oh, yes. perspe- perspective yeah. as well. Okay. So there are two theories, learned behaviours, conditioned behaviours. There are two other theories. First, the functional one. Okay. Now, the functional theory, and that's a bit um, re- regarded as the attributional theory, and that attempts to determine the cause of an, of an event or behaviour. And it's more like the behaviour has some sort of function behind it, so it continues. Um, that implies that the person developing the addiction has some control over the behaviour and the actions are deliberate in some way and they um, they attribute the behavior um, towards how they might actually have some sort of control over something so okay. they might say they'll have you use the drug addiction or the alcohol addiction because it gives them some sort of control and sometimes people who are socially inept will use their drugs or their alcohol to help them to feel better socially yeah so it has a function and over time they need the function in order to survive Mind you, it assumes, or they are assuming, that they have a control over their addiction. And from my kind of amateur psychological view, those two are poles apart. Yes, yes. And so having a control over an addiction doesn't actually mean you can say, oh, yes, I'm going to go and have a drug right now. It might actually mean that over time it forms such a function that you don't feel like you have a control because you can't cope without it. Yes, okay. So final one, genetic there's a genetic kind of behaviour. Yes. Now, there's some recent work um, on the genetic predisposition of addictions, and that's been studied for years. And we did have quite a swing, um, particularly after the Second World War, in terms of genetic um, uh, addiction, d- addictions according to the genes. But we're still working on this area. And it's more complex than saying that there's just a genetic predisposition, predisposition to alcoholism. Because it could be a good excuse, couldn't it? Absolutely. But... Um, alcoholics may also be exposed to alcohol in utero uh, and and therefore they have cell development that's more sensitive to alcohol and same with drugs but it's also that the baby might have been exposed to high dopamine levels and that's uh, dopamine levels are excreted when there's repeatedly high stimulus so a baby that's developed in utero with high dopamine levels may also need to have high stimulus when they're born. High stimulus meaning what? It doesn't necessarily have to be drug-induced? No, they might be, the, these are the, you know, people who are really wanting like high-pressure things. Yes. Like they want everything to happen quickly. Okay. And so, you know, using drugs and alcohol is a sort of a, a, a fast fix. Okay. 
But there's a lot of work going on around um, the addictive gene at the moment, trying to work out if there is an addictive gene with regard to alcoholism. But again, it's not... um, it's not conclusive because early exposure to the use of drugs or binge drinking appears to have more effect than any genetic predisposition. Yes, which is probably hardly surprising. Yeah. So we back to nature versus nurture, I suppose. We've covered that before. Is there such a thing as an addictive personality type? Well, now the term addictive personality, it's a popular psychology term and it's used a lot and it describes someone who's more likely to become dependent on something. And they get fixed on it and it gives them a high. But there's a distinction between those people who are addicted to a substance that gives them a high or a behavior that leads to high hormone levels um, versus people who have behaviors that give them a sense of control. Um, And these are more like compulsive people and fall into the category of, say, obsessive compulsive disorders. Some of which we'll probably cover in this later. However, personalities appear to run in families. So it's possible that there is a personality trait. Um, and it's been observed in people who've been adopted as well. So when you've got twin studies where, where you've got twins brought up in different families and adopted families, they often show similar addictive behaviours. Right. But, of course, that could also be attributed to the fact that they're adopted. Like so, yes. yeah. Yeah. so certainly you do see similar patterns of, of addictive behaviour in families and it may be the obsessional behaviours as well and it may also be the dependencies. So some people have a religiosity um, or, or addiction to intense groups or they're a little bit more gullible um, and these people are much more open to be addictive yeah. to substances. But there is a reality and that is that there's likely to be a mixture of nature and nurture. Now we know that each of us have a lifelong development in our brain and we're able to change the patterns in our brains bef- throughout our whole, our whole lives. Yes. We also know that we can be born with a temperament that experiences um, how we relate to people down, and it sets us down certain pathways. But we have strategies for how we interact and how we code and we interpret events and that also establishes how our brain develops. But we also know that we can change our brain patterns. I know. We've covered that. And we can develop new strategies. Yes. However, always we need to remember that old strategies don't go away. They remain. So yes. once you develop an addictive pattern, it'll always be there. We just need to change our pattern and have more strategies. So to apply this to addictions, we need to see that the patterns that have been established for a number of reasons, but they can be changed, and many people just do that. They manage to change it, mm-hmm. and they change their lives quite dramatically. So what I'm saying is that we can change the old pattern, but the old patterns still remain. So we'll always be addicted to something if, we're, if we have had that in the past, but we can have new strategies. So with the work that we've done with alcohol and drugs, the important thing is that these drugs are ac- addictive substances as well, and they actually affect the brain. Yeah. So we're not just talking about patterns here of behavior. We're also talking about how a drug may actually change how we think. But it is possible to path to pave new pathways in the brain to channel our direction to new ways and it's hard but it also involves a lot of work yeah but it's also recognized that the addictive behavior can be changed okay um, so if it's hard work which I don't think anybody would probably deny those with addictions who are listening now if if it's hard work there is some kind of optimism 
but we need to develop these strategies. How do we change our addictions then? Yeah. Well, as a therapist, I spend a lot of time working with people towards helping them to be motivated. And part of the key of this is to be motivated. Okay. Now, one of the key things is if, if, if I'm more motivated as a therapist than the person in front of me, it's not going to work. No. So I can try really hard to help them. And that's the same with someone who's caring with, for them or a, a relative. If you're more motivated for them to change, then they don't manage to change. Yes. So really the person with the addiction needs to see the benefits outweigh Benefits of changing outweighs the hard hard work of changing. Can you take us through some of the ways in which you do motivate people? Yeah. Okay, mostly therapy uses the principles that we've outlined in previous weeks last year around the area of change. Yes, okay. Now, how we change and why we change is, is really about the process of change. So remember the stages of change model that we outlined and I'll go through the steps Which very is, carefully. I must say on our podcast page, our Open House Community website podcast page if you want to catch those golden conversations. So okay, several steps through this as I remember. Okay, the process of change goes through the steps. Firstly, the person wanting to change has a pre-contemplative stage of yep. change such as I'm going to change one day, going to, going to, going to. The next stage is yes, I will change and I'll change next week and they start gathering some ideas that help them to consider of the change the third stage is the planning stage where they plan a way to change and they think ahead of how this might happen and they actually set a plan in place the fourth stage is the action stage and they actually follow the plan and then go to the therapist or they give up alcohol and they have some strategies the fifth stage is maintaining the action and the plan and finally the change the final stage is where they no longer make mistakes and go backwards yes but the key to all of this is that quite often people go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards in these stages. So they've got to feel comfortable with, I mean, do you call that failure or not? No, you don't okay. call it failure. And you actually do expect when you're giving up an addiction, you expect uh, mistakes. And in fact, the mistakes are really, really valuable and really helpful. And you need to look at them in terms of using them wisely. So as a therapist... You expect mistakes, you expect people to relapse, but you don't call them relapses. No. You call them um, learning situations. Or, or so what are they learning in that if there is a setback? I won't call it a failure, but if they're, if they're not making the progress and they're set back, okay, what are I'll they learning out of that? I'll give you an example. I love practical examples. A practical example. Yeah. And now... I like going to farms, okay? So I go to a farm and you see a sheep rut where the sheep have all walked along this one rut and they walk in the paddock and they follow that, that one line over and over again. And it's a bit like that's in our brain. Okay. We have a sheep rut in our brain and that's when we have an addictive pattern of behaviour. We go into the paddock in our brain and we walk along the same path over and over and over and yes. over again. Yeah. Now, if we want to change the pattern in our brain, we need to make a new sheep rut. So what happens is that we can either go into another paddock and make a new sheep rut, in which case we don't have any problems with the old paddock. But if we happen to go into the old paddock, what do we do? Straight away, we go straight into the old sheep rut. Yes. And that's the same thing that happens to us. Yeah. Until we've formed a new sheep rut in that same paddock or we automatically go into another paddock via on the way to wherever we're going, we will always go into the old rut 
until yeah. we've formed a new pattern. And so that's why it's really, really important as we change our behaviour that we develop new behaviours that are um, set. But we've got to be prepared for every now and then to fall into the pattern of, well, of behaviour. Because we're only we're, human. Yes, that's yeah. right. So you're saying in a way that our addictions need to be put into some kind of context. Yeah, yeah. If we view that the addiction is in control of us, we like to be feeling helpless and hopeless and use the addiction as an excuse for not changing. If we view the addiction as something that needs to be dramatically changed in our lives, we're likely to, to see it as an immense hurdle, but one that can be overcome. Yeah. We've just heard from one of our Open House community members on our Facebook page. She says she's come through a lot of addiction through grace and mercy, still struggles in some areas. Do you get that? I suppose oh, you yes. Would. Yeah. Oh, yes. I sure do. Does it, when, when she says that, does it in some way relate to the Christian experience then? Yes. And I think in the Bible it's often referred to um, as, as also as our responsibility to others who have weaknesses. As Christians, we've got to be very aware that there are many people, um, many of us, all of us, in fact, we have weaknesses, but... We're not to put temptation in front of people who have addictions. So I think it's really important if we're drinking alcohol to be very aware of how we drink it yes. in front of others. Yeah. Uh, so that we've all got a part to play in helping others with addictions. The Bible also takes us, talks to us about transforming our minds and becoming more like Christ. Admitting an addiction is a humbling experience. Yep. The act of humility in admitting weakness is part of our journey of being transformed. Now, if you think about the rich young ruler, he, he, he was addicted to money and wealth and power. Yeah, okay, yes. The act of humility in giving it all away would have led him closer to Christ, but he walked away from Jesus unable to do it. Mm. Um, so there's a chance that the action of realizing our addictions and giving them to Christ may in fact be our pathway to becoming more like the people God made us to be. I've never seen the rich young ruler like that, but I see him with new eyes then. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is an avenue for transformation, but it's not easy. No. And yet therein, within the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got to say, yes. does lie, lie significant power. Yes, yes. And if you think about Paul, where he he's talks in Corinthians about the... Uh, the thorn in his side. Yes. It could also be, you know, referred to as an addiction of some sort. Yeah. He wanted it taken away. It wasn't taken away. He kept doing what he didn't want to do and he kept coming back to it. Yes. <laughs> I think we all know a bit of that. I think this is going to be a wonderful series of conversations. Next week we start getting specific about addictions. Yes. Take us through where we're heading. We're going to look at alcohol. Um, the use of alcohol and addiction of alcohol and remember too that alcohol is a drug probably the most widely used drug and dangerous drug that we have in our society wow. mm. so I think it's worthwhile looking at and seeing how um, it has affected people and how um, what are the signs of addictions totally. with alcohol yeah so if you have that as an issue in your life or you know someone who does for it to be dealt with sensibly and um Sanely. Have a listen to Lynn next week on The Human Condition on Open House. Lynn, thanks so much as always. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.